Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Oh, hey, Trevor, Lindsay said she wanted to talk to you. She was heading out to her car. Um, so, well, good morning, everybody. I uh, am looking for my clicker. Up oh, there it is. All right, so I heard a story uh, about uh, a guy. He had been uh, trapped on a deserted island for a very, very, very long time. And he was, he was rescued when uh, a ship had come by and seen what was supposed to be a deserted island, had uh, these three huts uh, right up along uh, the, 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 the beach. And so they, they found that pretty odd. And they and ended up, they, they find a guy who had been living there for so many years uh, in complete solitude. Now, they get the guy, they rescue the guy, and the captain is talking to him, and he says, well, wait a second, I'm, I'm a little bit confused about the, the three huts. Were there more people here? He was like, no, it's always been just me. And he's like, well, then wh- help me understand the, why the three, the three huts, you know, you would only need one. And he's like, well, one of them there at the end, that's my, that's my house. And he's like, well, yeah, okay, that, that makes sense. You built yourself a hut. That's good. But what, what about the other one next to it? He's like, well, that's that's, um, you know, that's my church. Uh, he's like, I wanted a, a different place where I could worship. You know, just because I'm alone doesn't mean I shouldn't have a place to go worship. And the guys, the, the captain was like, oh, of course, that makes such perfect sense. Uh, he says, but, you know, that still doesn't explain the, the third one. And the guy gets all serious. And he's like, well, that was my previous church. <laughs> Left that one in a huff. We are in a notoriously difficult passage this morning. Part of the reason we're doing this series through 1 Corinthians is because we just wanted to teach right through the book and ends up that there are some very challenging passages, some of which have been causing church splits and problems for many, many, many years. In fact, probably about 2,000 years since Paul uh, first wrote the letter. And uh, which uh, is sort of ironic because he was writing it uh, to increase unity uh, in, in the church. But uh, almost everything about the text that we're going to look at uh, this morning is disputed in some way. There are, there are countless thousands of pages, hundreds or even thousands of scholarly journals, uh, journal articles written about almost every part of this text. And it seems like the scholars struggle to agree on really almost anything about the text. The cultural backdrop. Everyone knows culture is important in this text. No one can agree what the cultural backdrop is. They can't quite figure out what cultural uh, anomalies in Corinth Paul was responding to or which of the cultural uh, things that we know were going on happened to come to the forefront of the conversation. Even the meaning of certain references is uncertain. What should be a simple vocabulary study has become hotly contested with more ink spilled on it than perhaps some other entire books of the Bible. Simply contentious in so many ways. 
Interestingly, I noticed that over the last few months, you know, Trevor does a lot of our long-term scheduling, and uh, he's been kind of jiggering with the schedule a lot. So he's been adding like a, a, a special service here and another one over here, and he keeps making these changes. And then I realized he's stalling to get close to the, to the, to the date that his, his wife's due. He's been stalling so we couldn't put him on the calendar to preach this text. And then he throws in this last one. All of a sudden, I find myself teaching the text. I'm like, how did this happen? Trevor, it's been, he's been playing chess this whole time to lead to this moment. And I was like, that's not right. So anyway, this morning, I'm going to walk through the text. I'm going to point out some of the difficulties. I'm going to draw... Uh, some principles, and I'm going to leave quite a bit of it unexplained, or at least uh, inadequately explained. And so, uh, there we go. Should be fun. So, uh, let's start. Follow my example. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Follow my example. I'm going to read the whole text first. As I follow the example of Christ, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man, for man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Ushers, you want to pass out all the hats? You were just, you, oh, you forgot all the hats, Ed? Ah, bummer. All right, so uh, we should probably just let the text stand as it is, and um, you guys can go home and have fun talking about it. So a couple principles that I want to highlight on this. First off, everything a Christian does is done so that God's glory is made known. This is a, a key idea that is woven throughout 1 Corinthians, but particularly this whole section. So he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me and everything, holding to the traditions just as I pass them. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is man. The head of Christ is God. At first, we're like, oh, man, this is about authority and structure and things like that. The issue is this is one text in a very long grammatical structure scholars call ring composition or, or a chiasm. 
and so when you study it in its broader context, like five or six chapters worth, you find out that this has its parallel later in the, in the book. What comes next has a parallel later in the book. And all of these legs of the argument are building to one thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And so structurally, grammatically, in the broader context, and sometimes what even seems like repetition on Paul's part, it's because grammatically he is pointing the way toward 1 Corinthians 13, which of course most folks know if they've gone to a wedding and they read it because they think it's a marriage verse, but it's not a marriage verse, it's the, it's the chapter that defines love. And it, it represents, we'll get to it in a few weeks, but it, it represents one of the greatest explanations of unconditional love in literature and certainly in antiquity. Much of what we know about what it means to love is rooted in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This whole section and next week's whole section is about that chapter. It's heading toward that. And so when you start reading around this area, you start to hear things like shame and honor and glory and how, we, we, how when we act in certain ways and we do certain things that we diminish God's glory. We make his, his majesty, his beauty, we, we make it less obvious to the world by the way that we act toward each other or the world around us. And so everything that a Christian does is done so that God's glory is made known. That is vital, that is key. And if we would apply that principle in all of our life decisions and circumstances, it would resolve a whole host of problems and even contentious things that have happened uh, in the history of the church all around uh, the world. So everything that a Christian does. Now, where it gets super unusual for us is he ties this to these head coverings. So... If a man has his head uncovered, this is good. And if a woman has her head covered, that's good. So what do we know about, what do we know about this? Well, apparently, for men, if you cover your head, it's dishonoring. And for women, it, if you uncover your head, it's dishonoring. So, what does that mean? I, I don't know. In fact, I, I wish I, I did know, and I read uh, more commentaries and scholars on this topic with the most cutting-edge research happening, cultural analysis, and no, we still don't know. What we do know is that in his day, for a man to cover his head, that was an issue, and for a woman to uncover her head, that was an issue. The problem is, in the historical record, it isn't consistent as to why. See, we don't know if this is a Greek background or if it is a Roman background or if it is primarily a Jewish background. And we don't know exactly what was going on in Corinth. But from what we do know, arguments can be made in many different directions as to how one thing was honoring and one thing was dishonoring. The part that I really want to point out, though, is that we often read this as a rebuttal of the women who were being dishonoring. But that reveals our own cultural bias. Because in actuality, the text is confronting men and women. There's actually some uh, evidence that the men in Corinth were covering their heads, and that was causing dishonor to the church. 
That in fact, this is a rebuke that goes both ways. Some scholars have even said what he's actually doing is he's distinguishing the Christian church from all of the different pagan cults that were prominent in Corinth. So that in actuality, they would point in the opposite directions, put them in a position where they would be distinct from the culture around them. And that Paul was analyzing the culture, understanding it, and trying to figure out which is the, what is the best way for the Christian church to represent God so that he receives full glory and honor that is due him rather than complicate the conversation. There are definite possibilities in all these areas. So for instance, clothing tells a story, right? We all sort of recognize that. We don't want it to be true, but it, clothing does tell a story. So like, what do we know about this guy? He's a biker. Now that's a broad brush. I don't know that you should be judging people by the outside appearance of things. He's clearly a biker. What do you know about this dude? He's also a biker, but of course a very different biker with a very different head covering. Actually, he's wearing more significant head covering than the guy in front of him who should have been wearing real head covering. All right, what about this guy? Where does this guy live? Brooklyn. Absolutely. You see, you knew he lived in Brooklyn. And where do these guys live? Also Brooklyn. And so this head coverings and the way we dress, the way we present ourselves, it matters. It tells a story. And this is super important when you come to a text like this in the scriptures. I mean, head coverings throughout history have meant something. They've been significant. And so for us to try to begin to understand what it could mean in that context and what it means in our context is important. But of course, the bigger question isn't what did it particularly mean because it will have shifted and changed over the course of history and in different cultures. So we need to get at the intention of a text and then figure out if we are violating the intention of a particular text. Apparently in the ancient world, it was well established. And whether we like it or not, it is true, and it's actually true in most parts of the world today, that how a person dresses tells a story about them, tells a story about what their intentions are. It tells a story about their place in society or in culture. We would like to, to remove all of these things, but much of the world still functions in this way. And it's somewhat ethnocentric of us to deny that. The way that a woman would dress in the ancient world would readily take the focus away from what she was doing and who she was worshiping, and focus it on her. We may not like that reality, but it is absolutely the case. We have in the historical record ancient writers who will regularly point out how something was done in a dishonoring way, and it's often related to how a person presented themselves the things that they wore or how they tied up their hair or didn't tie up their hair, what they were trying to communicate with it. In many cultures to this day, if a 
woman was to wear a head covering or a hood even in some cultures. They were declaring themselves respectable. That they were part of a respected class of people. And in many cultures, it was also a symbol that she was part of a family, part of a tribe, a clan, and that if you messed with her, there would be consequences. To this day, those rules still apply in many of the Middle Eastern countries. Many of the decisions that these cultures have made and stuck with over the years were viewed as a way of respecting both women and the broader cultural moral norms of a society. We might disagree with how they're applied in our day and age, but to recognize that this is a reality is very important for us as we come to, to difficult texts like this. Now, you might say, well, then you know what? If the way that a woman dresses distracts a guy, that's sort of his problem. But it's not that it would just simply distract a guy. You're thinking about it in a very, very narrow window. In that day and age, and in many parts of the world today, if somebody violates the social norms, they distract both men and women. They distract the whole of the community from what they ought to have been focusing on, which in this case was the worship life inside the church. I think it was going both ways, but I think it's helpful for us to focus in on what, how this applied particularly to women since it has been used this way in, uh, for many, many years uh, in both harsh and redemptive ways. I think that's kind of the key takeaway, that it was clear that something about this was dishonoring and they should avoid it. So Logan and Melani are getting married. So that's going to be happening real soon, like a week. And you seem calm. I don't understand it. Uh, but you seem calm and that's great. Now, if I show up to the wedding in a pink fedora and a, a white shirt and a, a great big orange skirt with blinking sandals. I think most people would look at that and say, well, first off, Robert's finally snapped. Um, and how disrespectful. Now, it's an exaggerated example, but you would say, that ain't right. Why are you trying to be the focus? Why are you trying to draw the attention away from what really matters on that day? And we recognize it in extreme cases like that. This is what Paul was talking about in some way that we don't necessarily know the details. But everything a Christian does is done so that God's glory is made known. And the cultural manifestations of this, of honor or of disrespect, matter. Even to this day, we have preachers and sneakers Right, so you can go check this out on the web and they'll take pictures of all these like mega church kind of pastors and wearing their like thousand dollar sneakers. And of course, the larger cultural, cultural criticism about that is like, what are they doing and why are they doing this? And what about the money and how does that work and all of this? Because how we dress, the presentation that we make, the cultural uh, patterns that we adopt, they matter. They matter. I was told... Uh, the story from my mentor, Dr. Jim Singleton. He's preached here. You guys know him. He uh, had taken a church in Oklahoma. It was a large church, and it was his second week, third week, and he got a, he got a letter. Uh, and uh, the email, actually, it was, it was uh, titled, What's the Price of a Hat? What's the Price of a Hat? And uh, he thought, oh, that's an interesting you know, subject to a 
to an email. And so he clicks on it and he reads a heartbreaking story. It was a, a woman who had been dating this guy who had left the church some years earlier. And she had wanted him to come back to church. And so she used the opportunity of a new pastor coming to church to say, hey, would you just give it a try again? Come on back and be a part of, you know, the community that you grew up in and that, you know, just give it another try. And she had convinced him because a new pastor was in town that, uh, that yeah, he, he would do that. And he shows up with some excitement about the potential. She is delighted. She'd been praying for this guy for years. And one of the ushers told him that he had to take off his baseball cap. But he, couldn't, he couldn't be here with it. And so he went to go take this guy's hat off of his head. And uh, this guy turned around and walked out. And so she was asking, what's the, what's the price of a hat? Your cultural norms were so important to you that you've missed the bigger issue. He went to go tell a bunch of pastors that story, and one pastor took him to a prized possession he had in his office. It was a, a rack filled with baseball caps. And this pastor said that he would walk up and he would snatch a hat off of anyone's head who wore it in the room, in the sanctuary, and he would take it back and hang it as a trophy in his office. You know, he only had baseball caps, no fedoras, no other cool kinds of hats, because it was only the cap that he found so disrespectful. These things matter and how we handle them and the decisions that we make and the value we put on one thing or another. I think Paul would have been blown away that we would have made so much over a head covering. So much so as to chase a person away from a possible encounter with their Savior. Anything that makes God less beautiful to the world and Christians, we must proceed with great care and wisdom. Now, it's also helpful for us to point out that both men and women participate in leading the congregation in revealing God's glory and beauty. So now this text has long been used by people to show that Paul was a chauvinist, that he actually uh, didn't like women. Uh, it has been used by Christian men to keep women in their place. And so many of you have been on the receiving end of that kind of... Uh, of abuse of the text. More recent studies have actually swung the pendulum all the way over to show that this text actually proves that, that Paul was the first and greatest feminist, uh, which seems to even go further in the other direction, uh, which of course is often how these interpretive things sort of go. But it, but it is helpful to point out that Paul, contrary to what the church did for many centuries after him, and still to this day, he points out at the beginning, every man who prays or prophesies, every woman who prays or prophesies. Somehow we miss that Paul is framing this whole conversation with the reality that men and women were leading the congregation in prayer and prophecy. That they had a position within the church that was recognized as equal to each other. This is, in fact, controversial in that day and often in our day as well. 
men and women, both led the early church. And Paul has a, quite a history of being an advocate for women in many, many ways, elevating and honoring and recognizing their contributions uh, and uh, referencing them by name throughout his letters. And so we recognize that both men and women participate in leading the congregation in revealing God's glory and his beauty. In fact, Paul goes back to the creation. It's woven through this whole text in order to show us that it is male and female, that that's how God made it, and it was only then that humanity was very good, that we needed male and female for it to be very good. Actually, he, he does this whole section, right? I want to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, the head of Christ is God. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. And people look at this and they go, clearly, this is Paul distinguishing and putting a hierarchy in place of some sort with subordination of the women. That's one way of looking at it. But the word itself that is hotly contested is the very word head. Some say, well, clearly that means like the head of a company the CEO. And others go, no, it's actually more like the head of a river, which is not in authority over the river, but is the source of the river. The word shows up in antiquity in both ways. So it's actually quite possible that the word here is that I want you to realize that the source of every man is Christ, meaning Christ himself was there at the creation and made man. And that the, the head of every woman is man. The source of womanness came from man. Remember, she was taken out of Adam's side, and a woman was crafted out of his rib. And that the source here, the head of Christ, the source of Christ, is the Father sending Christ into the world. He was the origin of the sending of Messiah for us. So all of it is about the order with which these things came about in the creation. And you say, well, we're still in creation language when he talks about image. And look, only the man is the image of God. Well, that's not true because in the text in Genesis that Paul is quoting, you actually have man and woman who together represent the image of God. So this is a little bit different than simply saying one is in the image of God and the other isn't. It can't be what Paul is saying because he's literally referencing the Genesis text that would contradict it. So Paul is saying something else that in fact he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. People look at that and they go, well, if she's the glory of man, that makes her less than the glory of God. Well, that depends on how you understand the creation narrative. Well, what do you mean? How can that be? How could it be anything but this? If he's the glory of God and she's the glory of man, it must be a lesser glory. No, because in actuality, the whole creation narrative was building toward the creation of male and female. So each generation of creation was something more important and more valuable until the very end when it was very good. And what made it very good? The addition of the woman. You could say that the order of creation shows that the woman has preeminence in the created order because she finishes the storyline. God rests when she's finally added because now the work is really perfected. See, it depends on how you're reading these and what you're looking for to see what you can actually get out of them. So anyway, when you're reading this, you have to be careful reading authority into these texts. The vocabulary isn't quite as clear. The grammar is certainly more complicated uh, than that. And of course, then he, he, he throws this last thing in here, which sort of just reinforces it. The woman for man, the woman for man. People look at that and they're like, well, clearly she was made for him as the helper. Yeah, that, that word helper makes it sound like she is to help him. 
But the word used is the same word that's used when God shows up and saves and delivers his people. So it's a word that is reserved other than this occurrence for this incredible moment in the creation story. So anyway, here's the point. Interdependence among Christians is vital evidence of our love. The whole section is about mutuality, respect, interdependence, not about insisting on your own way. And this is woven all the way from 1 Corinthians that we started it, all the way through this whole section, and all the way to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And when you read it, you're supposed to experience the tension. He says, listen, women, you need men. You came from man. You came from his side. And then he says, but by the way, men, just before you start taking that and getting all heady and, and authoritative on that thing, be careful because remember, you're born from woman. He goes back and forth. Well, look, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. And people go, well, clearly that's the man. The man is the, her authority over her head. Well, no, he's, he's actually saying that the head covering is the authority she has on her head, which means he's saying that when she wears her head covering, she is announcing to the whole of the congregation that she is the recognized prophetess of that session, of that worship time. She ought to wear the sign of authority, which means he's granting her authority within the worshiping community. And back and forth we go because the, the point here is for the tension to build so that we recognize that we are made for each other. Yeah, but look, man has, has cultural and positional authority over women. Even in our day-to-day -day with all of the, the progress we've made, it's like, yeah, but, but actually you couldn't find the mayonnaise without the woman, so God had to bring a helper to you when you were lonely and couldn't finish the mission on your own. Well, wait, but that makes man sound like, well, <laughs> that's the point. It's back and it's forth. It's tension that's building. It almost sounds like Paul's talking out of both sides of his mouth because he's trying to say, listen, what matters here is the mutuality and the interdependence. And it's not just for men and women. It's for the whole of the Christian community. And if you read through the rest of the context of this letter, you're going to see he hits it over and over and over again. And then he ends... Not simply with this interdependence among Christian, Christians is a vital evidence of our 1 Corinthians chapter 13 love. But he ends with a reference to disputable matters. Which has got to be one of the most ironic parts in the whole of the Bible. As if Paul knew that this would become a contentious and a disputed matter. He says, if anyone wants to be contentious about this... We have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. He's like, this is what we're doing. This is how it's happening. This is the culture of all the churches that I visit. This is how we set them up. And so, yeah, like, you want to argue about this, you know, this is what we do. So, you know, you guys are going to have to deal with this and figure this out and, and try to work it through in some way. I read through this and I'm like, that, Paul, you, it, it is disputed. It's still disputed churches are still fighting and arguing over all of this and it's often because we're missing the bigger principles we're dropping into a couple of the key details and we're making them do what we want them to do for our particular bent but we're missing the broader principles everything a christian does is done so that god's glory is made known men and women clearly participate in the leading of the congregation and revealing god's glory and his beauty 
interdependence among Christians is a vital evidence of our love. And we ought to apply that in our churches. We ought to apply that in our marriages. We ought to apply that in our homes. We ought to apply that in our broader community. We ought to even ought to apply, apply it in how we interact with the, with the world around us. And just indisputable matters, just stop it. Stop being so contentious. Why can't we, we recognize the principles of self-sacrifice and unconditional love and just live that way? And when we do that, guys, we represent God's love to a world that desperately needs his love. And instead, we do the contention thing. So uh, have fun talking about this. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your texts, even these that are so difficult and challenging. And when we come to a text like this, we recognize, Lord, that you could have made these uh, clearer. You could have made it so that we wouldn't have to wrestle so hard, hard and so deeply with them. And yet, Lord, in the very process of the debate and of the discussion, we learn so much about you and how to be your people. Lord, it's difficult texts like this that actually reveal to us our heart our value, our idolatries. It teaches us, Lord, how we get to learn to love each other even though we disagree or can't understand or can't explain. And sometimes we get to these places where we just can't figure out what it is you want us to actually do in a particular given situation. And Lord, to know that in everything we represent you and in the way we work with each other and we we, we, we argue and we complain or we bicker or we strategize or we work through the details and how we structure our families and our marriages and we relate to our kids and our kids relate to our parents. Lord, in all of these things, there ought to be interdependence, mutuality, respect, and Father, above all, we represent you and reveal your glory to the world. Father, help us to ask the question is how, how we are acting and how we are behaving and the things that we are saying do they represent your glory and your beauty and your majesty and your power in this world? We pray that you would make it more and more true of us as individuals and as a church. Amen. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.